0: We're going to be reading from 1 John 4, 7 through 21, if you are opening your devices or turning your to your pages of the scripture you have with you. Otherwise, please listen to the word of the, Lord, word of the Lord as I read it. 1 John 4, 7 through 21. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him in this love not that we have loved God but that he has and this is love not that we have loved God but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins beloved if God so loved us we also ought to love one another no one has ever seen God If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ.
1: Almost every text that we've utilized in looking at, for, or every group, pericope, if you will, there's a fun word that theologians like when they mean a section of scripture, can be confusing if we're expecting John to teach us theology, but if we're listening to John try to inspire and encourage us, then we understand. And yet, if we're like, does this mean I'm a liar or I hate my brother. No, he's making a comparison. He's speaking sermonically. But if we let that over-influence us, we're just like, so we're just supposed to love people, and that's fine. There's a reason that John's so repetitive. There's a reason there are, I think, 31 references to the Trinity in just this few verses that you just read. There's a reason why he's being very pushy with his language. It's because he has hope that we can grow up in love because of the Holy Spirit, because of God, because of the work of Christ that was manifested. One of the ways that I've heard uh, 1 John 4 taken out of context is, what about Christians that are good at loving one another? John has no interest in, in inspiring you with respect to that question. He has a very significant interest in inspiring those that profess that Jesus came in the flesh and rose from the dead in them getting better at loving one another. I had people quote this and say, but I have all these non-Christian friends they are excellent love. And if someone says that to us, we should say, great. That's not what John's talking about at all. John's making a gospel statement about how love looks within the church and where it must come from. It must flow out of a love of God, not out of a desire to gain something, not out of a desire to um, set our own hearts at peace instead of trusting him to set our hearts at peace and then responding to that peace out of love. And that's a really subtle difference. And you notice John is um, implying something that's stated throughout the rest of the scriptures. And again, it's not a comparison to the love of people that don't profess Jesus as Lord. It's a comparison between our natural abilities to love and the Holy Spirit's guidance for us into love. And that might sound subtle, but I don't know about you. In my 20s, I was pretty confident I knew how to love. And now I'm like, maybe I didn't know anything about it. Maybe I didn't really know how to listen. Maybe the affection that I felt was worth either nothing or next to nothing, because people are more complicated than that, and loving them requires a lot of growth and maturity. C.S. Lewis said there are two kinds of people, those to whom God says thy will be done, and those who say to God, I will be done. John isn't making exactly that point. He's speaking to those who said to God, thy will be done, and he's encouraging them that they
2: can mature in love. And in these comparisons that he makes,
1: in these negative statements that he makes, in these sermonically pushy statements that he makes, don't miss the good news. For John, the good news is implied, but that doesn't mean we miss it because we're careful readers of the text. Look again at verses 7 and 8 and 9. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And John is reflecting on another book that he wrote, the Gospel. He's, I think, thinking about Jesus' words to Nicodemus in chapter 3 about being born again. Then he writes, Anyone who does not love God does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. And here he's talking about how he knew Jesus in the flesh, which is confusing if we take that statement and compare it to no one has seen God. But if we hear the statement no one has seen God as a motivation for loving one another, we understand it. But here's where the gospel comes in that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live
2: through him. That's our hope, friends. In loving him, in
1: loving the neighbors God has put into our lives, in allowing his Holy Spirit to give peace to our heart, it's life through him. That's our hope. That's the Christian hope. As Beth was leading us so well in the confession, I thought it would be interesting and probably some of you are either questioning faith uh, or have been for years. That confession's challenging, right? And yet if life in him is our hope and our only hope, then that's a release for us to live through him and not through ourselves, which actually is our true self. It's not an ultimate death to self. It's only the death to self without Christ.
2: Then, alive to new life in him.
1: Verse 10 says, In, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins.
2: Jesus' work takes care of all of our sin. John's writing to a number of churches around what we
1: would call Turkey, it was called Asia Minor at the time. And you read this in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Is he saying to the Smyrnan Christians you don't love God? No. You understand it sermonically, reading it. You understand the emphasis that he's making, and yet there are the words. Not that we have loved God, because He's reminding them of the order. They love God and one another because He first loved and pursued them.
2: This is so important. Who loved first? God. John's exquisitely clear about it here and a little bit further into the chapter. Is that all that matters?
1: Of course not. Your response to his love matters a great deal. That's why John is actually writing, to inspire them through their love of God to love one another. And yet in the middle of that, he gives us for about, I don't know, the eighth time, some really lovely indirect theology. Whose
2: love comes first? Is All of you have said words about God.
1: And when you say words about God, You're doing something theological. And theologians care about order. I don't mean order in the big sense.
2: I mean the order, like sequence. Whose love comes first? His. And John's writing that
1: to remind them to love one another. I have to say love thousands of times, and hopefully you're getting sick of it, because this little letter or pamphlet, or leaflet. Remember, it doesn't have a formal beginning and ending like so many of the letters of the New Testament. It's sermonic encouragement is to motivate them to love one another. Beloved, if God so loved us, I'm in verse
2: 11, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Now,
1: how can he say... In verse 8, in this the love of God was made manifest among us. And there he's talking about Jesus coming in the flesh. And then say no one has seen God. Because he's making a comparison. You know that you have the love of the Father because of the work of the Son, but you haven't seen the Father, and yet you act as though you've seen the Father. At least some of the time. When you were singing, you're singing with some knowledge that you have the love of the Father. When you are confessing, you are acting in accordance with the scriptures that teach us that confession is a lovely gift from God where we remember that we're forgiven and release ourselves from the pain we have caused
2: and that others have caused to us. When you look at the text and you ask the Lord to teach you about his word, you're
1: acting like you have the love of the Father, but you haven't seen the Father. John
2: is making a point about their lives that is true of most of you. And he's expecting them to be participating in the spiritual family that they're
1: in. And I wonder if it's been a few years, and it's kind of tiring. It's tiring to both participate and to do so wisely, because if we don't have wisdom and and knowledge of our limits, we'll give too much to the church. And what's too much to the church? It's when you get worn out. It's when resentment finds its way so quickly and easily into your heart and mind. On the other hand, there's non-participation. And then you're missing the power of gospel community, which is not just worshiping together. It's also us becoming better and better friends. And it's also being faithfully present
2: for our neighborhood. Without any one of those three... Our evangelism and our discipleship are partial. Your
1: opportunities to evangelize, and some of you are like, I am not an evangelist. Your worship is evangelistic. The fact that you care to sing is an expression of what you believe about the world. Worship and community and being faithfully present where you find yourselves are part of your evangelism. They're also part of your discipleship. You're growing up in Christ, and John is trying to motivate them because he knows their hearts. And I think this is true for many of you. Some of you I've never met. Many of you, I know your story, and your love for God is great. And some of the way that you evidence that to yourself and the
2: world is loving this very challenging spiritual family. I think this is, in 2021, it sounds a little bit like this. You love God? Can anyone see it around here? Faith in uh, in you is unseen,
1: but others can see through your treatment of others, especially those in the church, about your faith. And if you've been in the church for more than a few years, you know that that's actually a very challenging reality of the spiritual life. And that's why John is so inspiring, so aggressive in his language,
2: and repeats love so many times. Because naturally, We wouldn't get there. Love manifests
1: through him abides. In verse 13, 14, 15, and 16, John describes followers of Jesus as comforted in verse 13. In verse 14, there's an intellectual component of that. Some of you are a little more quickly emotional. That's me. Others of you are quickly in your heads. That's good. We need you. In
2: verse 15, he's talking about worship. In verse 16, growth. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us
1: because he has given us the spirit. He has given us of his spirit that both comforts us and is supposed to comfort us. Verse 14, and we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. John's talking about the evidence that he proclaimed and others proclaimed that they actually met Jesus both before and after his resurrection, which changed the world forever. There is an intellectual component to faith it is essential. It's not all of it, but it's essential. You do not check your brain at the door. Rationality and logic, yeah. Rationality and logic are part of faith. Verse 15: Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. Your voices have been doing that this morning, and I hope your hearts and minds are easily and fully engaged, also. Your songs are confession. Here, John speaking broadly about confession, about acting like a follower of
2: Jesus in your worship, your community with one another. I would add faithful presence, but John didn't. And then there's an
1: expectation that we will grow. So we have come to know and to believe the love of, that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and ab- God abides in him
2: the assurance and the comfort that he talks about comes over time. Some of you are dealing with addiction and you wonder where God is. And you hear scriptures like this
1: and they are not easy to apply. Because it takes a while for what we would call Ordinary means of grace to heal and speak truth and comfort our very being. Some of you are waiting on the joy. You believe and you're satisfied in that belief, but you're waiting on the joy that's all over the scriptures. Because it takes a while in a world cursed for our entire being to be grasped by the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ and given by the Holy Spirit. Some of you are in pain, physical or emotional, and you, there may not look like an end to you, and you're waiting on God, wondering where He is. And verse 13 and 16 would encourage 13 through 16 would encourage you to stay the course, because in this broken world, there is not healing from every physical or even emotional. There is significant healing. I wish I could help some of you believe that more strongly. But when we abide, which is continue to act as becomes a follower of Christ, we are healed and comforted and given that joy. What I find most incredible about the Holy Spirit's gift of those things is it's more often in the midst of those challenges than because we've been released from them. John penned verses 13 through 16. He's reminding us that we believe and confess, and then our lives are changed, slower than we would like when we think about it in passing, but probably at the right speed for us to actually take it in and learn to treat people with love and kindness and respect and mercy. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also we are in this world. We have talked about this. It is in the book of James. It is in the book of 1 John. When, when, and I just came up with this analogy, and it's terrible to use an analogy that you've just come up with when you're a preacher, but I think it's going to work. It's more like passing your driver's test than it is like getting 100 on a test when he uses the word perfected. It's the word teleo, that's I finish, or complete, or mature, or perfect in the Greek. There is a point where our love becomes mature. That doesn't mean you get it right, as in a hundred times out of a hundred say the right words, do the right thing, show up at the right time, be quiet when you need to be quiet. But more often than not, you are safe to be on the road of communal love as a follower of Christ. What do you guys think about the driver's license analogy? Does it work? I mean, it came up like
2: 20 minutes ago. Very nervous. We see perfected and we think, you know, I don't know, a perfect circle or 100 out of 100 on a test. John's saying it is
1: possible and actually inevitable in the Holy Spirit That you grow up and be mature in love. that, That your affection for those
2: God has put in your life is receivable by them. That's actually the sign. We want that kind of maturity.
1: We don't always want to do the work. Which is why that John continues to press and reminds us of the Day of Judgment as a motivation. And he says there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And if we're reading the Bible flippantly and we're not aware of genre change and we're not listening to John's tone of voice, this can confuse us because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Stated in other parts of the scripture. But you know that there are different kinds of fear. John is talking to what I'm going to call level two fear. And I'm going to use the co-text to make that argument, you know it's not just context, who's he writing to? it's what does he say in the rest of the book? It helps us understand these books. So if level one kind of fear is seeing the Grand Canyon and being in awe of it, level two is the kind of fear that he talks about in John chapter three, first John chapter three, where he's encouraging them to not wait to go love the people in their lives, and he says, "God is greater than your heart." Level three fear is you're in between the mama bear and the cub, right? You're naturally afraid. That's not the kind, if the Holy Spirit is in you, you're not not afraid of the bear, right? If the Holy Spirit is in you and you see the Grand Canyon and you're in awe of that, the Holy Spirit doesn't drive that out.
2: What the Holy Spirit drives out is our timidity in love. John is sermonically inspiring us
1: to move towards the people in our life in love in ways they can receive. That's the maturing of the love. And to not be afraid of getting it wrong because God is greater
2: than our hearts. You can go back and read chapter 3, which is so encouraging about this. We love because he first loved us. anyone says, I
1: love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. The expectation John has is
2: that you and I are growing up in love. The expectation he has is that our love is maturing. It's supposed to be. It's not quick most of the time. That's why God gives analogies like trees to describe
1: our growth. But it is supposed to be happening, and I hope that that encourages
2: you, that utilizing these ordinary means, singing, listening to the brook, confessing, engaging the text and attempting to understand
1: it more deeply and be grasped by it, most profoundly receiving the sacrament,
2: which we'll do in just a moment. These are the ways that we are grown up in love. Do you pray with me? Lord, would you be kind and gentle in showing us where and how you are growing us up in love for you
1: and neighbor? Would you help this community of faith to worship you with delight, to engage one another in spiritual friendship using all the tools we need to do that, listening and forgiveness and care and mercy. And would you help
2: us, limited though we are, to be a faithful presence of your gospel with word and deed. Amen.